So let's start in a, a familiar cluster of verses, just a few of them here. And uh, they'll be up on your screen in Acts chapter 3. So Acts chapter 3, verse number 19. It's the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching. And he gives these instructions to a group of people who have just seen the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in a way that no people on earth had ever seen. And Peter gives them this instruction. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Simple, simple verses. They're a gateway for us tonight. Because there is so much more that I believe God is going to pour out for us tonight in this issue of revival, this thirst, this hunger, this possibility, this promise of revival for God's people. Let me tell you some things I know about all of you that are saved. The first thing I know is that you're grateful for what you have. You're grateful. You're, you're, you're not walking around upset that Jesus cleansed you of your sin prepared an eternal home for you in glory, inhabits you in the person of the Holy Spirit, has chosen to bless you in ways that if you slow down a little bit, you probably couldn't count. You're not upset about that. You're kind of happy about that. I know when you're thinking clearly and when I'm thinking clearly, you're actually really stoked about the fact that you have Jesus and he has you. But let me tell you what else I know about you. I know that when you are walking in the Spirit, there are moments where you tell yourself there has got to be so much more than what I'm experiencing right? There's got to be more than this. It's good, but it's not complete in the sense of our experience. And so even when we traffic in moments, like we had a good solid, what, 55 an hour tonight of just anointed worship where, where things are stripped away, clarity comes, the presence of the Lord moves, love fills the room, our hearts are stirred, and we're experiencing God's presence, and we love that. But even in moments like that, it just leaves us hungering for whatever's after that, for that next part that could come. So we live in this place called holy dissatisfaction. It's holy because we're not complaining, we're not murmuring, we're just hungering, and we have smelt what he's got cooking, but we haven't eaten it yet. So it's kind of like when you walk in and you've had a long day and you're starving, and somebody's got something cooking on the stove. Maybe, maybe some of the ladies in the room have had us husbands kind of get in your space while you're cooking. You're trying to finish the meal, but the smell of it is calling us, and we just keep drawing closer, and we're drawing closer, and you're saying, could you please go stand over there? Because you're busting my groove, you're busting my cooking groove. Well, it's similar to that in the spirit, because we smell, we sense, we, we foresee the things that God has for us, but we haven't tasted all of them yet. So we press in closer and we press in closer and sometimes the Lord says, not yet, not yet. But there's coming this convergence where the desire of God to give us revival is being met with our hunger for revival. And when those two things converge, let me just tell you what happens. Revival. That's what happens when his determination and our desire intersect and converge, revival happens. So tonight, I just want to take you through some components of revival. I'm not going to comprehensively um, um, 
you know, just give you everything about revival, revival, but I am going to tell you some things that are going to awaken that further in you. So let's start with a very simple question. What is it? What is revival? Let me give you, first of all, from the divine side of things. From the divine side, revival is an increased time of the released presence and power of God among his people. From the divine side, it's when God says, I am going to release and increase my presence and therefore my power among my people. It is sovereign. Apart from that part of the equation, revival cannot happen. Revival will never happen outside of the divine timetable. But don't be afraid of that because God's not up there playing peekaboo with his kids that want revival. His divine side says it is time to increase and release an elevated sense and experience of my power and my presence. But what about the human side? Because this is the part that I think that we need to be uh, really thinking on right now. That I believe we're in a season where there's, there's no doubt in my mind that God's saying, I'm ready to release it. The question is, are we prepared to steward it? Because that is key and that is essential. So let's look at that. From the human side, revival is a time of returning to an obedience to the revelation of God. It is a time of spiritual consecration unto the person of God, resulting in a spiritual clarity and a missional courage among God's people. Let me just say that one more time so you can swallow it. Revival is a time of returning to an obedience to the revelation of God, to the word of God. It is also a time of spiritual consecration under the person of God. I said that because it doesn't need to just be more Bible study, more Bible study, more Bible study. You can study your Bible all day long, but if there's not a personal consecration under the person of God, revival will not happen. And it results in a spiritual clarity where you start seeing things as God sees things, and it also results in a missional courage among God's people. And so I want those two statements to kind of undergird everything else I want to share with you tonight. And so have you ever drank from a fire hydrant before? Yeah. You're about to, amen? So just, yeah, just roll with me here. By the way, I'm one of those preachers that loves feedback. So if um, you're worried that maybe you might scare God off, if you shout or say amen, I promise you he's cool with it. And so am I. So let it fly if you feel it. Let's talk about this. Y'all will loosen up over time. I can promise you that. I, I'm, I'm, We'll get you there. What precedes true revival? I think it is expressed well in the 145th Psalm when I say that preceding true revival, there is the invisible determination of God to manifest his glory through the church. That sounds very theological, but it's actually quite exciting. The invisible determination of God to manifest his glory through the church. Listen to the psalmist. And by the way, who inspired the psalmist to write the psalms? God did. So this is God's heart about himself through the pen of the psalmist. So what does the psalmist say? Saying to God, he says this, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So watch this. When, when the psalmist is writing the 145th Psalm, he's bursting in praise. And from that vocabulary, from the verbal anthem coming out of his heart, we find some things.
things about the heart of God that God wants to show. So look back in those verses with me. God wants that his works should speak of his glory. That's in the first part. God wants and desires to hear all of the saints, all of the children of God, blessing him, praising him, magnifying him. God wants that the children of God will speak of the glory of the kingdom. God wants all of our, our voices together in unison, the people of God throughout all the generations, for us to speak of the kingdom, the kingdom that is and the kingdom that is coming, and to manifest and to elevate the reality that his is a glorious kingdom. Not like the kingdoms on earth that fall, not God's. He wants to make known to the children of men, to all human beings, his mighty deeds. He wants to go further. He wants to speak of the glorious splendor of his kingdom. Are you picking up on the, 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 the depth and the richness and the, the layers of the words here? And then the psalmist simply says this, your kingdom's an everlasting kingdom and your dominion throughout all generations. What, what's so important about all of this? Friends, these are truths that you can't shrug off. These are things that are beyond the norm. These are things that are written in the secret place, in the quiet place, where God's one-on-one -on -one with David as that 145th Psalm is being penned, and the Lord is revealing what he wants to do in the earth. He wants his deeds to be made known. He wants his works to be uh, bringing him glory. He wants people to speak of and to sing of and to experience the glory and the splendor of being citizens in his kingdom. That's just a little bit higher level than a decent church service once a week <laughs> on Sunday. Do you see what we're getting at here? Now stay with me a little bit because here's the counter side to it. Now some of this stuff that precedes revival is going to be somewhat of an unveiling of a negative experience by us on earth. Because I'm going to tell you something. You, want, you will not, I will not hunger for the more if we're satisfied with what we have. And so one of the things that God does is when he begins to want to release, that his timing comes about when revival is something that is his decree. He's going to give it. But what he does simultaneously on earth is he begins to bring again that holy dissatisfaction to the hearts of his people. And it happens in a dozen different ways. But let me just use the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter number three. Now these are not pleasant verses, but I'm going to tell you something. There needs to be a touch of this in our lives concerning what we see going on in the church. Well, look at what he says. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Greek indicates I will vomit you. I will vomit you up. Why? Why is Jesus saying this? Because look at what the church is testifying of itself in verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. And Jesus says, yeah, but you don't realize that you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You, you, church growth movement does not tell you to preach that kind of stuff. But Jesus did. Verse 18, Jesus says, because they said they were rich, and Jesus says, oh, no, no, you're actually you're actually." walking out poverty, he says, let me counsel you, and I, here's my counsel, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, 
and white garments, speaking of holiness and purity, so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And so what, what do we have here? We have Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea. But friends, if our heart is beating in rhythm with the Son of God, there will be seasons and there will be times where we take an honest inspection of ourselves as the people of God living out our faith on earth, and we will say, it looks like the church thinks we're actually experiencing all that we can experience because the bills are paid, uh, because people are coming, because uh, we've got a certain system that's working good to draw the crowds. I'm talking about local churches. Because we've got the touch, we've got the vibe, we've got the name, we've got the man of God or the woman of God, and we've got the, the really cool skinny jean worship leader guy with a killer hair. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so we've got what it takes to usher in revival. And Jesus might say, you actually don't. I, I, I love you, but... All of that that you think is such treasure isn't really treasure. Why don't you come with me and I'm going to give you some treasure that I've purified through the fire of my holiness. And when you have that, I'm also going to supply some salve, some ointment on your eyes, and your eyes are going to see things as they are. And by the way, I know you're lifting your hands on Sunday, but I saw where you were on Saturday. So you need some white robes to cover up the shame of your Saturday night nakedness. Amen. I'm going to get in your business. That's okay. I forgive you for being upset. That's all right. It's all right. Because we want revival, right? We want revival. So holiness is a part of it. See, that's in the church. So if we're walking with Jesus, there's going to be moments where we look around and we say, yeah, I'm not that impressed with me. I'm, we're not that impressed with us. What, what, what adds that dynamic to somebody's life? Seeing Jesus. Not necessarily with a visible eye, although, Lord, if you want to do that, I'm all for it. I've not seen Jesus visibly. I know some people that, that have. Uh, I'm not that guy, but, but I have seen him by faith. And I have seen his holiness. I've had um, in the spirit an Isaiah 6 kind of moment where his glory, and the more time you spend with him, the less easily impressed you are with all of the stuff going this way. But that doesn't mean we're going to get bitter. We're not going to get jaded. We're not going to walk around all the time critical and being fruit inspectors. That's not the, the alternative. The alternative is to say, yeah, this is okay. This is fine. But I've seen above it, and he's showing us things that make me thirst for more of that that I've seen from there to the experience down here. And so we live in this tension of, of grateful but not fully satisfied. But what about the culture? Look. Let's go to Habakkuk, because it's not just about seeing what's going on in the church that, that brings us to this place where like, oh, there's gotta be, we need breakthrough, we need revival. What about the gnawing awareness that God's glory is not being manifest appropriately in a generation? Raise your hand if you're satisfied with what God's glory, how it's being manifested right now in the world. I'm not, and it's, it's not his fault. Because the way that God primarily manifests his glory in a generation is through the body. It's through us. 
And so if they, if they want to find the head, they usually have to encounter the body. And if the body is being who she should be, the glory of God will be manifest in the world. But look at Habakkuk's ancient words. Listen to these. This is the way we should feel sometime. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry out to you, violence, and you'll not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Friends, this is the heart of somebody that's looking outside of the church and looking at the culture. This is Habakkuk. And he's looking at what's going on among the people of God, the covenant people of God, ancient Israel. And he's, he knows they're the covenant people. He knows they've experienced favor. He knows they have the covenants and the promises and, and all of the things that, that um, typify that, that, that life under Yahweh in the, in the uh, ancient Israel. He's saying, but Lord, I'm looking at our culture. We're an unjust culture. We, we shrug at injustice. Lord, there's violence all over the land, and we've seen so much of it, we don't even blush anymore. Lord, the oppression of the people that we're supposed to be ministering to in compassion and mercy, and yet our culture is oppressing them. And then he does something bold that we've been trained up in our Bible about religion that we shouldn't do, but I love the way that the ancient Hebrews talk to God. Because he is, in essence, he's saying, Lord, what is up? How long is this going to go on? He says to God, as if God didn't know, what's going on down here is not fit for your glory. And he expresses the reality of the culture. Um, I believe in biblical separation, and let me explain that. That means I, I, I'm not to be a friend of the world system, because if I am, I can't be a friend of God. That's, that's scripture. But friends, biblical separation just means that I, I don't let that world system and all of the, uh, the ooze of the world just get into my veins. I don't become a part of that. But separation got morphed into isolation somewhere along the line where people say, well, I'm separated. So they, they, they get in their monasteries, they get in their cloisters, they, they get in their little communes somewhere and they, they get away from the world and they just close their eyes, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. It must all be good because we're so isolated. That's not what we're to do. You know, when I look at our world and I see the decadence going on in 21st century America, anybody can complain about it. You don't have to have one spiritual gift to complain about how decadent the world is. You don't have to have any kind of filling of the Holy Spirit to point out, you know, what's wrong with the world. But I'm going to tell you something. We have to have the heart of God to actually enter into it to become part of the remedy for it. If, if literally we're not bothered, we're not grieved, we're not in angst about what we see going on in the world today, something is ghastly wrong. Because when we look out there, we realize everybody out here was made for his glory. Every, every created thing, every living thing for his glory, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, the celestial kingdom, the stellar and the earthbound, the seas, all of it's for his glory. And what we see so often is this racking of the curse on the world. And I'm thinking to myself, I believe the default mindset for a lot of us in the church is, yeah, that's just going to be the way it is until Jesus comes back. Friends, I don't believe that. 
I believe what the Lord is offering prior to the return of Christ is the most glorious revival and awakening that anybody on this planet has ever experienced. And so I, and listen, I, I, I'm going to say this. I hope it's, uh, it's received properly. I don't want to wait until he comes back and enforces righteousness. I want to be a part of us in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the gospel, in a, in a fueled by love aggression in the kingdom to take the gospel out. I want to see manifested righteousness because people bow to the king by faith. So every now and then, I think it's okay to cry out with Habakkuk. To say, Lord, I'm grieved. This has gone on too long. See, when that starts happening in a generation, and it is happening. When I say generation, I'm not talking about Generation X. I'm talking about baby boomers, Generation Y, millennials. I'm talking about all the people living on the earth at the same time. In that sense, when that starts happening in a generation, and you start seeing octogenarians, people in their 80s, and they're saying, more, Lord, more, Lord, more. You start seeing 15-year-olds crying out, Jesus, and they're weeping, and they're calling out their passion. And millennials are saying, forget the the American dream. I'm going to give away everything. I'm going to live for the glory of God. And you're seeing that across the board. I don't believe in coincidences. I just believe the Lord's doing something. What else precedes true revival? Let me just give you this. A growing apostasy among the professing church coupled with an increase of vice among unbelievers. Um, I would just use, we're on Wednesday nights, we're doing the life of Josiah, this young and godly king who took the throne of Israel at age eight and didn't read his first passage of scripture until he was age 26 when they located the missing Bible in the nation. And at 26, he began to say, All of this sin in the land and the apostasy of Israel is an affront to a holy God. And he said, one man said, enough is enough. And he led a generation to turn and repent back to God. What had happened? That the people of God had apostatized. That's just a word that means they had abandoned the truth and the person of God. And they went, I like the old King James. It's not politically correct, but I'm going to say it. They went a-whoring after other gods. And so they went chasing other gods and other, other, other lovers in the sense of their heart's affection. And Josiah looked at this and he said, no. And so the culture was jacked up and the people of God were jacked up. Listen, we're living at that time, friends. You know, I don't want to throw stones at, 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 at the professing church, but can I just say something? Thank you. I'm going to. I appreciate the levity here. Um, Not every person that says, Lord, Lord, has actually met him. And so what happens, especially down here in the southeast United States, it's epidemic religion. And so people have enough religion to to modify a little bit of their behavior one day a week. And they wrap it in Sunday finery and then they go back. And so you've got this detachment from the glory of Jesus Christ and, and the way folks are living. And so we've apostatized. I don't have enough time, but... <sighs> Boom! Permission from Nile. Come on. 
Listen, there's just a lot of garbage going on that passes for um, Christianity. And, and I'm not mad. I'm not, if I'm mad, I'm mad at the devil. I'm, I'm not like, I don't have an ax to grind, but my goodness, man, my kids. I've, I've got an almost 18-year-old and almost a 13-year-old, and I'm thinking about my grandkids already. Neither one of my kids are even married yet, but I'm thinking about my grandkids, and I'm like, man, we have to start saying that, that some stuff that attaches itself to Jesus ain't Jesus. And we have to start representing, and that means this, not settling for the status quo. Not saying amen because it reads like a Hallmark card and has the name Jesus in it somewhere. But recognizing, listen, that the, the, a return of obedience and loyalty to the holy the, the word of God and the revelation of God and a consecration under the person of God to just actually take it up a notch from Sunday going through the motions and, and just exposing apostasy. And listen, all you have to do really to expose apostasy is just live in the light and speak truth, man. You know how to chase darkness out of a room? You turn the light on. Light comes on, darkness flees. It's amazing how that works. It's the same way in the spirit. That we just start, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Isn't it amazing? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then before he left, he said, you are the light of the world. And so we're just supposed to go out and we're supposed to shine truth. So let me go further in this. I'm almost done with this point. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what precedes true revival? Well, let me give you this. And this is, this is back to the positive stuff. The elevated compulsion in the church toward fasting and prayer for breakthrough within the church. It's not, I, I, I love the fact that, and let me tell you, IHOP Atlanta reframed this for me over the past five years. Because I've been in ministry since 1997, full time. And we always had a prayer ministry. <laughs> it feels silly now. Well, we got a prayer ministry. What does that mean? Well, it's like one young zealot and three old ladies gathered in a room together once a week. That, that was our prayer ministry for like a decade. And when I stepped into the prayer room, and I just, just, I knew God's assignment for me in that season was to sit there and soak for several months. And then I got acclimated a little bit. What, what exactly is going on here at IHOP Atlanta, what is that guy doing? You know, what is this all about? And just started observing. And then I got to know the heart and the DNA of that house. And I realized, oh, this is what he's been wanting all of us to do. That everything is birthed out of intimacy, and intimacy gives its best expression in prayer, both listening and speaking. And so I realized, okay, and then all of a sudden I started hearing and meeting people from different denominations and different age groups and different races and different parts of the country affiliated with IHOP Atlanta, affiliated with KC, and not affiliated with any of that. And I just keep hearing the same thing, that God is doing a global worldwide prayer movement. I had a guy, um, a Baptist dude, just this weekend over online. And, and he, he just makes this general tweet. A friend of mine retweeted it. And he just says something to the effect of, and this is a Baptist dude. He said, all, all local churches need to begin to establish constant houses of prayer. I'm like, 
I was looking for like the, the, the fine print somewhere and there wasn't any. What's happening is this, this heartbeat of God. He's starting to say, he's starting to say, you talk to me because I want to talk to you. When I talk to you, I want you to listen. And when you talk to me, I'm going to listen. And I just want us to keep doing that because I love you. And it's the more I love you and the more you become aware of it, the more you're going to know that you love me. Matter of fact, I'm going to love you so much that loving me back is irresistible. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to expand you. I'm going to transform you. So let me give some verses, okay? I'm just kind of... Psalm 85, 6 through 9. We're talking about this elevated compulsion of the church. Just listen to this prayer. It's a prayer song. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us. He says, I want to see it. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I want, to, I want to see it. I want to experience it. Grant it to us. Let me hear. I want to hear it. What the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Hey, I can give you dozens of definitions for a revival, but here's one right out of the Bible. When the glory of God dwells in a land. When the glory of God inhabits, hunkers down, sets up house, whatever you want to call it. When the glory of God begins to characterize a people and a place. And so he's given this longing and this hungering and this thirsting. You say, well, Jeff, that doesn't say anything about 24-7 prayer. No, he's just praying. He's just expressing. We're not looking for a formula from this verse. What we're saying is this. In that expression of what he's saying, he's saying, God, I want to see your glory. God, I want to experience your glory. God, I want to hear your glory. God, I want it to return and settle on the land. That's not um, good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. That's not the Sunday, you know, it's not that kind of flippancy in prayer. It's, it's the insuppressible longings of a heart that's coming alive. Back to Habakkuk. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years. Revive it. Revive what? Revive that work, Lord. Revive, Lord, the work that I've heard of. In the midst of the years, make it known. And the emphasis there is make it known again. And then he says, in wrath, remember mercy, because Israel was experiencing the heavy hand of God. And I I just love Habakkuk. You know, there's not 50 Habakkuks. You get the picture of a lone prophet, probably did not have a lot of friends. And, and, And he's just saying, God, I've heard about who you are and what you've done. And I believe it, but I want to see it. And Lord, revive the work that I've heard about. Billy took us through three historical revivals in his message on revival. And every time I read on revival, every time I hear about revival, especially the historical ones, and I just read and I'm like, there's a part of me that says yes, and another part of me just says, I'm so sick of reading about this stuff. I am so tired of having to look at revival as history. Lord, I want it in my generation. I want it in my life. I want it right here in my region. And I don't believe there's anything that's stopping that from happening. I think God is desiring to awaken our hunger to a level that is worthy 
of him entrusting revival to us. He, remember, it's God the Son that said, it's a bad thing to cast your pearls before the swine. Is there a greater pearl that we could hunger after than the pearl of revival? And yet he's not going to cast it before those that might treat it unworthily and trample it underfoot. So he's elevating our desire. Niall told me I could preach longer, so you can email him at nileshouldhavebeenquiet.com. <laughs> I'm almost done. Just kidding. All right. So let, let's, just, let's, let's just go there because, okay, so we've talked about what is revival from the divine side, from the human side. Divine side, as God says, it's time. The human side says we want it. And we talked about the things that precede revival. Some of them are very negative. We look at the world around us. We look at the church around us. We have a holy dissatisfaction. We say this isn't right. Where's the glory of God? And then we're motivated to pray. And we're motivated to cry out. We're motivated to put other things aside. And we're literally consumed. We Christians, let me just say, man, I can't get away from those points. We, we go out of our way to embrace mildness. Well, just like, man. All things in moderation. All th- I, I understand the biblical meaning of that. But I, I just don't think revival is entrusted to moderates. I, I don't. Well, what is a moderate going to do with revival? Yeah, become a radical. Okay. I guess my point is this. It's like, It's a radical desire for a radical manifestation of a radically good God in a generation that doesn't even think he exists. And so when we start pressing in for that, and there's just something about doing it with other people too. You know, I want to be around fanatics. I do. I would much rather be around. I am now abandoning my message. I'll be back in a minute, fella. I I want to be around some fanatics I I would rather have some fanatical Christian brothers and sisters that embarrass me from time to time than to be around a bunch of dullards that embarrass me all the time man I'm having fun so what marks true revival let me just give you a few things okay First of all, a return, say it with me, to holiness motivated by a desire to please the Lord. A lot of us were presented with a holiness that was fear-based. Be holy. Dun, dun, dun. And it was just, that's why I added in there. I want to be holy, not because I'm afraid of the consequences if I don't. And by the way, there are consequences. I want to be holy because I'm absolutely convinced he's worthy of it, and it's good for me. You know, holiness is not a sacrifice. Holiness is stepping into God's best. Let me give you just a little bit from Acts 19. The Bible says, in the midst of revival, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came, look at this, confessing and divulging their practices. That does not happen anymore. It doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't happen anymore because we, we redefine holiness. We, we just kind of dilute it so everybody's comfortable. And we just find what's the lowest common denominator we can get away with without being called unholy. And let's just go for that. And, 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 and so we, we dumb it down. But when, when listen, 
when you start stepping into holiness, it's motivated to please the Lord. And by the way, when I step into holiness and when I pursue that, let me tell you what's not a characteristic of my holiness. Me going around pointing out your unholiness. That was a lot better than you just amen right there. Some people express their holiness by going around, unholy, unholy. That is not holiness. You don't have to advertise your holiness. Holiness is between you and God, but it also has incredible uh, outflow into the lives of others. But they were confessing and divulging their practices. Um, I've seen some churches go overboard with this. If you ever been, let me just lighten the mood for a little bit. You ever been in one of those services where it's an open mic confession time? I'll make you a promise. Not going to happen here. We will come alongside of you and we will confess our sins one to another, but it's not open mic night where everybody's trying to one up the guy or the girl that went before them. Oh, you think she's sinful? No, friends, literally getting in a covenant with somebody in, in, in the blood of Jesus and just saying to them, I'm struggling. I've sinned. I'm grieved. I'm cut to the core. I'm convicted because of behavior that has encroached upon my life. Listen, when revival happens, two things happen. We don't fear being able to share that with one or two people that can help us. And when we do share it, because it's revival, they don't want run off and talk about us after we shared it. And so in Acts 19, there's this return to holiness. Um, it's, it's, we're not, we're not, I'm not going to try to cram in a year's worth of just pastoring in, in, the, in the first couple of messages, but I, I, I do want to tell you, and I think I speak for the other three pastors here, um, we are really committed to leading this assembly in practical holiness. We're holy in our standing because of what Jesus did, but because of that holy standing, we want to have a holy walk. And so we will just approach the holiness of God with awe. It doesn't mean we won't laugh. It doesn't mean we won't have a good time. It doesn't mean we won't exhale and relax. It doesn't mean it's, you know, all tight and serious and bound up all the time. But I'm going to tell you something, man. God doesn't entrust revival to a, a people group that are flippant about purity. And so we want revival, and God says, you want revival? I'm going to give you continual revival at the same level that you offer continual repentance. And there is that kind of uh, koinonia, that partnership over that. What else marks true revival? A contagious boldness in Christian witness that results in large-scale conversions. I've never seen this in my life. Let me just read it. So the early Christians prayed, and now, Lord, look upon their threats because they were getting persecuted. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. You want to see healing? Anybody? You want to see healing? You want to see signs? Wonders? And they're going to be performed through the, through the Lord in the church, performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so then they prayed, and when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I, I, man, I, Lord, do that again before I die. I, I want to see that, man. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, when revival hits, evangelism it is in a course you take. It just flows out of you. You're not even trying. More comes out of us evangelistically in revival by accident than it does when we're not in revival. 
and it just flows out of us. Why? Because we talk about the one we love the most. So all the Cleveland Cavalier fans in the room today, you, you spent about 4.30 this afternoon, you, you were talking about King James. Not the, not the Bible translator, but the basketball player. Why? Because you, you're just a big fan. And it just comes. You didn't have to work it up. You didn't have to take a course. It just oozed out of you. We have some of you that have grandchildren. You know, back in the day when we had the, the paper pictures and you had your wallet and you would say, you want to see my grandkids? And you pull out that thing that big and you'd have pictures of your grandkids. Now we do it with our phones. We're just like... We just keep doing it. Why? We talk about what we love. And when a revival happens, I'm not against training, but what I'm saying is more happens organically for, with the gospel and with boldness and with witness in the, in the context of revival. Than, and, and I've never seen an outpouring like that before. Some of you have maybe. I've not, but I'm convinced of it. What marks true revival? Next, the undeniable manifestation of the miraculous working of God. Healings, deliverances, callings, prophetic precision. I'm, I'm just going to go there. I'm not going to read this little paragraph I wrote. I think it's probably up there in the notes, but just, just give me a minute. Um, when revival unfolds in its fullness, nobody will be asking if it's God. Have you ever been in that season where it's so good but it's not so good that you aren't left with, what was that, was that just good or was that God? You, you talked about that this morning. When what I'm talking about hits, nobody's going to ask. When, when literally people are walking out of cancer wards, clean, with no IVs stuck in their veins. When limbs are regrown. When eyes are opened, not because the great woman of God anointed them with, with virgin olive oil and a shamadababa, it's, it's not that. It's that when, when the three-year-old walked by and says, Jesus loves you, and boom, yeah. eyes are open. Yeah. I've prayed for so many people in wheelchairs, and only one time have I seen somebody get up. One time, and I, I can't tell you how many people, and it grieves me. It grieves me. Because the Son of God, when he walked on earth, he, he never said, I can't. And he said that you will do, Jeff, you will do the works that I do and greater works that I do, you will do. He said that. And we just got to get to this place where, we're, where we stop pretending that we're not grieved by that. You know, just to... to I don't... I'm, I'm tired of looking at somebody in a wheelchair. And I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive here. My, my wife has a chronic injury that six years ago happened in a catastrophic car accident. Man, I, and we believe she's going to be healed. We believe it. We claim it. But we've not seen it yet. I've seen my kids weep over her leg, their tears dripping on her leg. And I, I'm not upset with God. I'm not bitter at God about that. I'm just saying that when revival comes, Amy will join the dance ministry. Yeah. And, and we just get these hungers suppressed. We just get them buried under 
so many things, but when we're, we're looking at this and, and God's just imparting his heart to us and he's, he's, he's blowing on the embers of our hunger and he's making them flames. He doesn't want them to remain embers. Embers give off minimum light and minimum heat. He wants to blow on them the breath of God, the wind of the Spirit to where it's a flame. You know, the book of Acts is basically the book of the spreading flame. Pentecost, the flames came. The rest of the book of Acts, there it goes. And I want that, and you want that. I... Two more marks of true revival, and then I'm going to call the worship team up. The love of God becomes predominant through the church in times of revival. It's actually, it's actually love that we don't even try to manifest. It's, it's, it's irrepressible. John reminds us of this. And, and guys, I don't know if this is, I think it's both. I think it's both the initiation of revival and the fruit of revival is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Revival will, like a tsunami crashing on a shore, it'll take away all that conditional love we cultivate in our hearts. Can I say this? This is not an accusation. This is just an observation. That you and I are conditional lovers. I, I don't know that there's anybody in the room. Maybe there is, and if you really think it's you, I, I want to learn from you. I'm being serious. I don't think there's anybody that has zero conditions on loving people. You, you know that Jesus actually had to enact a command to get us to love our enemies. You know why? Because it'll never occur to you in your flesh. But when revival hits, you're surprised at how you're loving your enemy, your abuser, the one who betrayed you, your own private Judas, because something has happened in your heart that comes with such a torrent and such a force that it expunges conditional love. And all of a sudden, it's unconditional. I say, well, Jeff, how does that happen? Because Jesus is reigning in your heart, and he's the only unconditional lover. I, I want to see that, man. You know, we, we're, we're having to fight for unconditional love and social justice and racial healing. You know why we're having to fight for that? Because we live in a culture full of conditional lovers. Which, by the way, if the conditions aren't met, the love isn't there. And what takes up the vacuum of love? Selfishness and hate. And so we're having to fight for it, and we're going to fight for it. But we're not fighting according to the flesh. We're calling on the unconditional lover to come and topple some strongholds in this region so that the stronghold of racism, which is conditional love. Racism means I'm going to love those that are like me, look like me, act like me, 
dress like me, think like me, have skin like me, have hair like me, have features like me. I'm going to love them, and I'm not going to hate the other ones. I'm going to tolerate them. When revival hits, (laughs) you won't even have to try. The last mark of true revival shifts within the morality of the culture due to the influence of the purified church. The culture shifts. The culture shifts. There's just a little nugget here from Acts 19 in Ephesus. The Bible says that the testimony of when revival hit that region, that a number of those who had practiced magic arts, there's sorcerers, witchcraft, they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Say, whole lot of dough. Thank you, Taylor. They brought their stuff. <laughs> they could have pawned them. You know, that's what, let's pawn our books and we'll give it to the missionary. But they didn't. They just brought all their stuff. When I got saved, my whole background was just atrocious. And most of it was affiliated with uh, the music scene I was involved in. And so I got saved and um, radically awakened. But I didn't know what to do, so I'm still listening to the same stuff. And I just remember sitting there listening to Pearl Jam. For you young people, that was a grunge rock and roll band. <laughs> and I'm, I'm listening to Eddie Vedder sing, Jeremy spoken in class today. And it's about a kid who commits suicide. I remember just riding down the road. He's a brand new save guy. And I'm like, <laughs> so I took that out and I popped in Counting Crows. Every CD they ever put out was depressing. I mean, it's just a suicidal CD. And all of a sudden I'm realizing, Oh, that's not me anymore. So you know what I did? Now, believe me, I'm not trying to say, go Jeff. I'm I'm just saying this, that all of a sudden, that was my equivalent to their witchcraft books. And so I went to the dumpster of my apartment. I made, there had to have been $3,000 worth of of CDs and just made trip after trip. And what I realized was this, it's like, that's not me anymore. Those songs don't resonate with my spirit. Every time I listen to them, I start thinking about what I used to be. And there's some unhealthy attraction to that. And so I'm going to cut it off. What happens when revival hits? It means that the culture shifts. Study the historical revivals and see what went on in those cities and those lands where literally they had to shut down bars because nobody wanted to get drunk anymore. It's just amazing to me that when the Holy Spirit comes, he reorients your appetites. Worship team, come on up, please. Mercifully, come on up. I'm going to give you this last question as the worship team gets ready to help us and I'm just going to ask you this question. Who's responsible for a revival? Who's responsible? Divine responsibility is part of the equation, but I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this. Stop saying, well, I, don't, I, I just don't think God's ready to offer us revival. That is just a cop-out. Could you imagine God saying, yeah, I really don't want to manifest my glory. I'm really not interested in people experiencing me. Come on, man. 
That's what we've been saying for decades, centuries maybe, because it makes us feel better about experiencing the status quo generation after generation. God wants to. But there are appointed times. There are appointed times. We're in one. We are in an appointed time. I'm not asking for a move or a second or a vote on that to find out. I'm telling you, prophetically, you don't even have to be prophetic. We're in an appointed time where God is doing it. Repent, therefore, it's the verses we read at the beginning. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He wants to send it. He wants to send it to you. He wants to send it through you. He's not asking you to wait on anybody. Young people, don't wait on old people to make it happen for you. Most revivals began when young people got fed up with what the old people had settled for. But it's also human responsibility, and it's the famous verse from 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and uh, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I'm just going to give you a, a little Spurgeon, and then I'm going to have you stand up. So Spurgeon, Calvinist Baptist, sounds like a flaming, hungering, charismatic when he says this, oh men, brothers, sisters, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for revival? Men and women whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this very moment to exercise unceasing intercession that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as he has in the former generations. We cannot be content to read about revival in our history books. Let's ask God to make a future history book of us. That they'll read in the future and say, I wish I had been in Atlanta at the beginning of 2018 and into 2019 when the fire of God began to flow in Lawrenceville, Georgia, when a simple group of people from Emerged Assembly started crying out after 12 years of night and day, saying, God, visit your people. Lord, heal the sick. Lord, raise the dead. Lord, save the sinner. Would you stand to your feet?